welcome. Uh, this is the Stories Podcast, and I'm excited to do really my first episode, my first real episode. Um, I'm joined by my really good friend, Maha. Um, she and I met at Trinity, but I, I'll leave it at that so that we can talk <laughs> about our story. Uh, welcome, Maha. Thank you so much, Angelo. I'm really excited to be here. So this is our first try. Um, hopefully this works out. Um, we're at a place called Tango Palace uh, Coffee Company because the first place we tried to go to uh, decided not to have us because uh, uh, privacy issues with other patrons. But we are in a secret patio at Tango Palace, um, which is pretty cool. What, like, what do you think of this place? I mean, it's beautiful. I was telling Angelo that I want my patio to look like this one day. And um, I think now, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, Angelo, if your podcast goes viral, it won't be so secret anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it really is gorgeous. I would check it out if I were you. Yeah. Well, it's not on blog TO yet, so... We're still keeping it secret. Uh, hopefully, hopefully th th this is a quiet place, so maybe we can record more podcasts here. Um, but I'm really excited to do this. I'm really excited to have Maha on because she has a very interesting story, and we're really good friends. And I think, um, you know, I, I think it was just nice to have her on because she's such a wonderful person. Um, Thank so, you, Angela. Yeah. Um, before we start, I think. We, we're, we're at Tango Palace, we're in Toronto, and I think we have to start off first by acknowledging the land. Um, this is the traditional territory of many indigenous nations in the past. Uh, the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. I don't know if I'm uh, botching these names, but you know I think this is important. Um, today, the GTA is home to many indigenous brothers and sisters. Um, they are alive, they are thriving, but um, it's important for us to acknowledge this because indigenous peoples still face many challenges, um, including but not limited uh, mental illness, racism, unceded land, the destruction of their lands. Um, we're seeing in a lot of First Nations uh, not having clean drinking water. Mm -hmm. So I think it's up to us to do better and be better and really change things for um for indigenous peoples because we owe it to them for uh you know sharing this land with us Absolutely. so uh, before we start i want to ask ma what does reconciliation look like to you what does it mean to you wow i mean i think that's a really big question and i don't think anyone's ever put that question to me so i'm kind of gonna try i think and answer it on the fly um I think it's really important for you know, non-Indigenous folks to think about what reconciliation means to them, but it's probably much more important, I think, to create a space where Indigenous folks can define for them what reconciliation means to them, right? I, I don't want to come in to a situation as a non-Indigenous person and say, well, this is what reconciliation has looked like in other places, this is what it should look like here. Um, I think it's really up to people like me who have a lot of relative privilege in a situation like this and who are not directly affected by the specific circumstances um, and specific kind of forms of oppression that Indigenous people face in Ontario and in Canada more broadly. Um, it's up to people like me to sort of just 
use that privilege to help create spaces where indigenous folks can say, you know, reconciliation to me means that my basic needs are met. Like you talked about um, lack of clean drinking water. I remember uh, on, on a lot of indigenous sort of um, reservations um, and indigenous territories, I remember doing a research project in first year at university, which is a long time back now, um, about the crisis in Attawapiskat. And it's just obscene to me that people in Attawapiskat still don't have clean drinking water. It's been going on for upwards of two decades now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think when we talk about reconciliation, we have to be really mindful that there are both, that we're not just talking about historic injustices, we're talking about um, industri- it, you know, injustices and forms of oppression that continue on to this day. Yeah. Yeah. So I think in this, in this podcast, one of the missions of this podcast is to learn and for me to learn as well. And I think um, uh, you bring up a good point that it isn't necessarily what reconciliation means to either of us, mm-hmm. but what it means to Indigenous peoples. Absolutely. So what is a, like a better question to ask in, in the future? Is it more along the lines of what can we do to further reconciliation? Or what's the, what's the question to ask here what, uh, about what we can do uh, to better our uh, relationships with Indigenous peoples? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's the question you need to be asking uh, and that all of us need to be asking ourselves is, is you know, w- and this I think this is a question that we need to ask more broadly when we're talking about, you know, how do we interact with historically marginalized communities? Um, what is our role as people who have relative privilege to... Um, to those, in those relationships, like what is our, um, what are we able to do, and it's often I think a question of not just what are we able to do, but what what role do those communities want us to play, and then, um, you know, asking them directly, uh, asking people directly, like what would be helpful to you in this situation, what role can I play, you know, vis a vis reconciliation for you, and then, I think you know, being able to play that role stepping into that kind of form of allyship um, and being, you know, willing to continue to ask yourself hard questions about how do I, um, even through, you know, even though I'm, you know, committed to this allyship, uh, continue to um, reap the benefits of, you know, institutionalized racism and institutionalized forms of oppression. and I think it's the, the last thing I would say on the subject is just sort of being really cognizant not to, and I mean, I do this, we all do this, not to speak in generalities, right? To, to recognize that there's, um, when we talk about indigenous people, we're talking about, and I don't even know, like I'm terribly ignorant on this as well. We're talking about arguably thousands of communities of people. Um, and they all probably have a pretty different sense of what reconciliation means to them, yeah. right? Yeah. it's it's different nations it's so many it's multitudes of nations each with their own traditions similar similar languages possibly at Mm -hmm. least from what i understand Mm -hmm. um but they are each individuals um and they aren't it's it's a fallacy to think of them just grouped together as 
as indigenous people's quotation marks, right? right. You know, we ha- I, I guess we have to be more aware and learn more about, uh, you know, the nuances and the differences Absolutely. between all the different nations, right? Yeah, I think it's roughly equivalent to, like, group all indigenous people together is, like, roughly the equivalent of saying, like, oh, like, the African problem, quote-unquote. I'm doing yeah. air quotes here, right? Um, it's, it's um, I think, a, it's really convenient to try and group peoples together. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's counterintuitive and, I think, counterproductive to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate your perspective. I always have appreciated your, uh, your perspective. You've always been a really good advocate. So that's why I brought you on to this, uh, to this podcast, because you have such an inter- interesting perspective of, on, on things. Um, so that's why I want to ask you the main question of, of this podcast, which mm-hmm. is, what is your story, right? Um, for everybody listening, you know, when I thought about this podcast, I'd been going to a lot of uh, events and I'd been asking, what do you do? But people contain more multitudes than just what they do for their job or what they do for school, Mm -hmm. what program they're in for school. Mm -hmm. Um, People have interests, people have uh, childhoods and stories. And I think that's important to bring out, Mm -hmm. um, which is why I'm asking you, what is your story? And I know that's that's a lot to (laughs) to ask. Yeah. Um, So. You know, I'll break it down a little later on, but you can talk about uh, your background. Where were you born and raised? Um, I'm going to ask that terrible question of like, what is your ethnicity? Um, <laughs> what do you do? Yeah. Um, all those sorts of questions. Yeah. Feel free to answer however you want, and then okay. we'll we'll unpack it more as we go. Yeah. It's a huge question. I mean, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question before, actually. Yeah. Like, what is your story? Yeah. And you know what? Like, the, the, the question t- gets people off guard mm-hmm. because what do you say about yourself, right? Yeah. What is it that, um, what is the story that you're putting out about yourself? Mm-hmm. So, I, 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 the, you have hard work in front of you to, yeah. to answer that question. Yeah. But answer it however you want. I will. I'll, I'll do my best. I think it's really interesting that you've hit upon this question just because there are a lot of ways, I think, in which we get to curate our stories and the stories we tell people about ourselves and the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves on a daily basis. Um, but often, I think, as well, um, our stories are kind of circumscribed by events and by other people like people will have stories in their heads about who other people are or what other people do um and i mean like for you example like i have a i have an idea of who you are in my head but that story that i have that i tell myself or i would tell other people about you is not i know for sure is definitely not the complete story right um I guess for me, I'll start at the beginning just because it's easiest. Um, I was born in Canada. Um, I'm the child of immigrants. My mom and dad moved to Canada um, in the GTA in 1992. And that was one year before I was born. My dad came first. Um, He 
was a like foreign trained like professionally trained uh, accountant he had like his family in Pakistan was pretty that's where my parents are from was pretty wealthy um, and so he studied in London at the best schools and he went to work in parts of the Middle East like Kuwait he then worked in Pakistan again and by the time it was the late 80s in Pakistan, and this is even something I don't know a lot about, but the political situa- situation was pretty uh, tenuous, to say the best, um, or say the least, I guess. And he um, had a couple of pretty scary experiences that just made him feel like he didn't want to raise his family in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. So in 1992, he emigrated from Pakistan to Canada um, and he couldn't find a job. I mean, he had a professional designation as a CA from London and he he couldn't find work because he didn't have quote-unquote Canadian experience, um, which I think is a really common narrative. Um, Eventually someone took a chance on him and uh, he got a job working in his field as an accountant and then he sent for my mom and my two brothers. I've got two big brothers. Um, they were pretty young at that time, like four and I guess it would be seven. Um, and the rest, as they say, is kind of history. You know, my parents lived in a one bedroom apartment. There was five of us living in Richmond Hill. And um, you wouldn't really know it based on how my parents live today. Like. They've been really, really, they say they've been really lucky and really blessed, but they also worked super hard and in, you know, less than a generation have really, I think, stepped into that um, kind of cool, kind of insidious space of being that quote unquote model minority, Mm -hmm. right? Um, They've done really well for themselves and in turn have done really, really well for their kids. Right. Um, I was born in 1993 uh, on October 6th uh, at York Central Hospital in Richmond Hill. Um, it was a Wednesday. My mom always tells me, and I came first thing in the morning, and I kept her up all night. That's what she <laughs> what she always says. Um, and I grew up those first few years in Richmond Hill, and I remember we lived in a. We moved from the one-bedroom apartment to a townhouse um, on a street called Mary Gapper and we had lovely neighbors and we had um, sort of a, it was like a pretty small townhome so we were kind of squashed in a couple of rooms um, but for my parents it was a really big deal it was their first house and I remember that the tile on the floor in the kitchen was this bright green that my parents would never have picked for themselves. And that we had these, this is like V-shaped staircase. And one on one side, there were all of the rooms and on one side there was the TV room. And no one who ever came to that house left without slipping down the stairs because they had this, <laughs> they had that really like slippery kind of carpet and there was no railing. Oh. Um, But those were the stairs where I learned to crawl, apparently. Not that I remember it. And when I was three, we moved to Markham. When we moved, um, I guess it wasn't... For me, it was just exciting. I think for my parents, it was 
really exciting as well, but a little bit more challenging because it's sort of set some roots in Richmond Hill. Um, but we moved to this big house in the suburbs, um, and that's where I spent most of my formative years. Um, we were there until the time I was um, well into university, actually. Um, and so that when I think of my childhood, I think of that home. It had this massive backyard that you know every kid kind of wants. That's where I learned to like play catch with my brother. Um, it's where we had these fruit trees in our backyard that we were all very proud of. We had all the you know, like prototypical Ontario fruits. We had apples and cherries and plums. I have really vivid memories of being like eight or nine years old and my like hiding kind of furtively so my mom wouldn't see me picking cherries straight off the tree and eating them. Yeah. Um, I was always so um, like overzealous about the fruit. I would pick things before they were ripe because I was just excited about them. Yeah. Um, I remember my childhood being pretty happy. Um, I had huge birthday parties and pinata with like pinatas and bunting and balloons and pretty dresses and massive cakes from Loblaws. <laughs> um, and we always had family over. When I was pretty young, my grandpa lived with me. Um, he lived with us. He moved in 1995, uh, two years after, or three years after my parents did. And um, he lived with my uncle for a time and then we had the biggest house. So he lived with us and his room was right next to mine for my entire childhood. So he was a, a really big sort of looming figure in my early childhood. Um, I was my dad's dad and I loved him so, so much. He passed when I was 11. Um, so I, I have really vivid, clear memories of his life and his death. Um, I think for some people, and I think this is, I mean, actually, I think this is less and less the case, but I think for some people, it's kind of like a, a rare thing for them to have a grandparent in the home. Yeah. 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 I think it's, um, <clears throat> you know, I had my grandparents at home. Uh, they lived with us for um, more than 15 years. Uh, they went wow. back to the Philippines. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they came to take care of me and my brother. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's funny that you talk about your grandparents living at home because I don't feel like that's... I feel like that's a common story among immigrant families or yeah. families of people of color. Yeah. It's taking care of your elders. Yeah. Um, but also them being a part of the, uh, the familial unit, right? right. And them being uh, a part of taking care of you in your childhood yeah. and you having memories of being with your grandparents. I think, yeah. you know, I, I wonder, I wonder how different that story would be for, uh, for families that aren't, that don't have an immigrant story. Mm -hmm. um, because in, in some ways, you know, I wonder if, a lot of the grandparents don't live at home or mm -hmm. you don't see the grandparents 
every day mm -hmm. whereas you and i we saw our grandparents every day yeah right you know yeah. that that's that to me is really interesting of of it kind of coming from this this immigrant experience absolutely i think you know for a lot of people you know you i think you and i probably both use the 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 term back home right and i, I heard my parents use it my entire life and i always knew intuitively what it meant i knew it meant for them Pakistan and you know when they lived in Pakistan which they did for many years as a married couple they lived in this like compound uh this like family compound so there were three houses in a row I never saw this house I was never there but my brothers and cousins have very vivid memories of it too there were three houses in a row and the middle house was my grandfather's and on one side was my uncle's house my dad's brother and on my other on the other side was my my dad's house right and so every single meal every single day um you know the whole family would get together and sit on the floor in my grandfather's uh you know living room and and eat dinner together yeah. and it was the same for us growing up like it was a very similar kind of thing like um when my uh you know i was very great i was very lucky to grow up around a lot of um, family, like my aunt and my uncle and my other aunt and my other uncle and my other uncle, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so whenever we hung out, it was always dinner. It was mm -hmm. always lunch or dinner. Like all of our, I think like a lot of people, all of our social events are kind of centered on food. Right. And right? food is such a, you know, everywhere you go in the world, mm -hmm. food is such a um, an aspect that brings everybody together that um, relationships are built around yeah. um, and I think that's that's something that everybody in in every corner of the world sort of shares absolutely I think everyone can relate to that everyone can has those like really formative memories of like seeing their mom or dad or their grandparent in the kitchen um, you know for for us it's because Pakistan is pretty it's a pretty patriarchal society it's a pretty patriarchal culture um, a lot of domestic labor is left to women, and so cooking was generally the domain of women, right? So that's where I would always be. You know, whenever there was a family party, I was in the kitchen, even if I wasn't doing anything, right? If I was just sitting up on the counter, I was there with the women um, of my family, my aunt and my grandma and my mom. Um, and that, for me, was the first kind of... That was the way I connected to culture, right? Yeah. Um, was through food um so that i think is when i looking back even now but especially during my childhood was such a huge part of of my story right yeah. like like even i remember <laughs> i'm sure like i can i think a lot of immigrant kids have had this experience like the lunches my mom would pack for me. Oh, right, yeah. Right, like ki yeah. other kids making fun of your lunches because they were different than, than theirs, right? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. my mom never would give me like Lunchables or something yeah. like that, right? My mom always gave me traditional foods. And yeah. there were times where I would say, mom, I don't want dal and rice for, yeah. for lunch. Give me a sandwich because yeah. I don't want to get made fun of, right? And I could never articulate that discomfort to her I could never say it's because other kids are teasing me oh for sure for right? sure um, but, but you know what you know what's funny is yeah. that 
is that when we were younger, and I felt the same way, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's got their sandwich. Right. And uh, I had my rice and Filipino dish. Mm-hmm. And it was all mess, uh, mixed up, and it was a little cold. Um, it wasn't necessarily that great. Um, and, you know, I, I had people kind of make fun of me for it, like yeah. it, like it, like a lot of immigrant kids yeah. do. And you were like, yes, I want that sandwich. Mom, can you pack me that sandwich? Yeah. But now thinking back at it, do I really want a bland sandwich <laughs> with like deli meat yeah. and, and tons of mayo? Because that sounds disgusting to me. And even then... Sometimes those those sandwiches I didn't really want to eat. Yeah. And, um, you know, like looking back at it now, I kind of wish I had more ethnic traditional food at uh, at lunch yeah. instead of like sandwiches. You yeah, know? I totally relate to that. I I didn't want the sandwich. I wanted the 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 comfort of seeming on the surface like I belonged. Right. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And I mean, I went to a I went to an elementary school. I, I had I had I was lucky I only went ever went to one elementary school I was never one of those kids who had that story of like we moved a lot we had a really stable childhood in a lot of ways and so you know I went to a school with a lot of um, kids of like Chinese heritage and um, Japanese heritage Taiwanese um, kids whose parents had come from Hong Kong right and they had that really similar experience, right? Like you're kind of saying like rice and some traditional dish and kids are, kids can be, you know, when they don't, even when they don't mean to be, they can be pretty mean. I remember I had had very vivid memories of, you know, people saying like, oh my God, that kid's lunch smells. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because it's not an aroma they're familiar with. And I was always so terrified of drawing that kind of attention to myself like oh god like please don't say anything about my lunch yeah right um and i don't think you realize until maybe you're a bit older how much that kind of experience marks you yeah right and yeah. how much it informs like how do i move through the world as an adult um what about uh high school let's let's fast forward it a little <gasps> so school. how was high school for you um was it one of those high schools that was quite diverse. Um, did you, were you part of the cool kids, quote unquote? Um, what were you interested in in high school? Yeah. I know, I, I remember that you were in like a leadership program, like Shad or something, Shad yeah, Valley. Yeah. Um, you know, what was what was high school like for you? I mean, I know we both went to Trinity, we both went to U of T, mm-hmm. so high school must have been some sort of like ambitious thing for you in order for for us to have gone into trinity because apparently trinity only wants the the kids who Mm. who are like student leaders you know what i mean yeah the cream of the crop right gosh um high school okay so i went to high school in unionville uh which is like a small like sub municipality within Markham, which is this huge sprawling suburb um, in the GTA, and I went to a high school called Unionville High School. It had a, and still does, but it had like a really fledgling um, arts program. But I wasn't in that arts program. I never had like any particular, like 
talent for, say, even though I loved it, like for drama or visual art or music or anything like that growing up, um, I was always really laser focused on academic achievement um, from the get go. Right. That was the thing that I was always praised for as a kid, even going all the way back into Montessori. Right. Um, and it came, that praise came from teachers, that praise came from my parents and my other family members. I'm very close to both of my brothers, but I'm especially close to my brother Zan, who is the younger of my two older brothers. And that was the way he always distinguished himself as well, was through academic achievement. And um, people always compared us, always, always. Yeah. So. I think I remember, like, in our first year, uh-huh. hanging out in your dorm room and you talking a lot about how much you admired your older brother. I admire both of them a lot. They're really different people in a lot of ways. Um, and I'm like both of them in different ways. Um, growing up, I was always compared to Zen. I really feel a kinship with my older brother, Amar, now because I think we've been through a lot of really similar struggles that I didn't understand when I was growing up because he's almost nine years older than me. Yeah, There's a big yeah. age gap. Um, anyway, it was always for me about academic achievement. That was the thing I was always praised for. That, so that's the thing I re- was like reflexively kind of drawn to. Like this is the way to distinguish yourself. Um, and I had teachers who pushed me. So when I left grade eight and went into grade nine I said okay this is the way I'm going to continue to distinguish myself in this in this space is to you know be really strong academically and so that's what I always kind of strove for um I was kind of a wallflower in high school um I don't think that's changed too too much (laughs) but I um was kind of like a quiet nerdy kid I think I think there were times, though, um, I was actually talking to a friend of mine about this recently, where we went to high school together, and she told me, you know, I like you much better than I did in high school, and I said... That's a weird statement to say. <laughs> like, do, are you, do you get complimented by that, or are you, are you weirded out by that? I'm not weirded out by it, because I totally get what she's saying. I think a big piece of it is I like myself a lot better than I did in high school. Yeah. Um, I think everyone is sort of plagued by this in their teens and sometimes well into their, you know, 20s, 30s, the rest of their life. Um, but I was really, I think, insecure. Um, super, super, super insecure in high school. And the one thing that I felt any measure of confidence in was, was academics. So I was always trying to prove to other people how smart I was. Yeah. Right? And there was a time there was a time and place, I think it was at Trinity, where I stopped doing that finally. Um, because I realized that in order to make myself feel better I was putting other people down. Yeah. And I did that a lot through high school. I, I can look back on it now and see that with some measure of objectivity. Um, it's it's not fun to think about that that was the way I behaved but it, it I think it is a piece of my story it, it's a it's a it was really humbling for me to come to that kind of realization it's humbling for someone who's a good friend of mine to say to me you know you've made you've changed a lot and for the better right um, 
I just pushed all through high school, grade 9, grade 10, grade 11, grade 12, to be as strong academically as I could be. Um, I struggled um, a lot in grade 11, and I think looking back, that was the first time that I experienced really high anxiety and a depressive episode. I had this semester that was packed with math and science, which are not my natural strong suits. Um, and I remember just feeling completely overwhelmed, um, being petrified to go to school, not wanting to, you know, sit for tests, faking sick, yeah, you know, yeah. all of that stuff because I couldn't cope with what I'd taken on. And I felt such weakness um, at that point of life because I said to myself, you know, everyone else is doing this. Why can't I do this? Um, and then in grade 12, I like gravitated towards things that I knew I could succeed at and, and wouldn't like consider doing anything that I wasn't sure I would do really well in because I was so concerned about like everyone is in grade 12 getting into a good university yeah um i applied to 12 universities because wow i was terrified i would get in nowhere yeah okay um and it seems so excessive because for those of people in ontario they know like you get three free applications yeah i applied to nine additional schools and i made my parents pay for those applications because wow. i was so scared i'd get rejected from everywhere and i i think looking back that fear of rejection is so deep-seated um i'm and i wasn't even i wasn't even aware of it then i couldn't even put a name to it but yes i'm afraid of being rejected or or not fitting in or not being accepted and i really a big piece of it was also bravado like i wanted to be able to to point to some kind of concrete achievement outside of myself and say to other people, well, look, I got into the best school. Yeah. Right? Um, so because I've, you know, achieved this thing, automatically, like, that accords me some kind of worth that I wouldn't otherwise feel. Um, yeah. High school was rough. Yeah. yeah I didn't fit in. I was not a cool kid at all by any stretch of the imagination. I was really drawn to artsy kids the kids in drama, kids in music, kids in visual arts, because I really wanted what they had. Yeah. I wanted a discernible, I think, talent that I could point to and say, I'm the best at X, right? Um, and because I didn't have that, I, I think I developed like quite an inferiority complex. Yeah. yeah. So I want to ask about Trinity, because I, I think that that really is the next step. Yeah. And I would be remiss if we didn't talk about Trinity because that's where we met. That's right? where we met. And, you know, you're, you're talking about um, you're talking about applying to all these universities and um, and being afraid to get into these universities. Yeah. And then both of us got into Trinity College and Trinity College, you know, has this tradition and still is of being, you know, white, male dominated, yeah. old money, yeah. you know, uh, old sort of co college. Yeah. Um, and and it, I guess if, if people don't know, Trinity College is uh, a community at U of T. You get sorted into one of the 
colleges mm -hmm. and we got into U of T we got into Trinity mm -hmm. um, and it's so kind of funny to me mm -hmm. because from the very get-go from mm -hmm. the from our first year yeah I felt like you and I weren't necessarily supposed to be at Trinity yeah and looking back at it now you know, I share that same story of hanging out more with the drama kids, the artsy kids, the music kids, especially, yeah. you know, that was that was my thing. Yeah. So how did we go from there to this like academically focused, white dominated, um, old money academic school? You know, yeah. I, like I wonder how we jumped to that. So like, let me ask you, you like, what were your experiences at Trinity? How did you feel? And, you know. Um, did you feel the same way as me where we felt like like outsiders but trying to change things from within because yeah. like a, you know people people won't know this but but you were female head of college yeah um, so the highest student leader in Trinity College mm -hmm. and you know that that, that means something yeah. um, but at the same time like um, Trinity is Trinity, right? right? And I think yeah. you and I stood out. Oh, right? for sure. You know, for sure. Our our skin color stood out. Let's, Absolutely, let's, yeah. Let's, let's just be... yeah. Let's just be honest. Our yeah. our skin color stood out. Absolutely, right? it did. So, like, what were your experiences like? How was it like being female head of college? And was it like? Did you feel like me? Where you felt like like you didn't necessarily belong, but you are here to make a change like you can make a change in the position that you're in trinity trinity was challenging for me i i lived in extremely sheltered kind of for 17 years i was 17 i think you were probably 17 too when we yeah, both went 17. to trinity um I had my 18th birthday. I remember in my dorm room, you were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was there. And I had never been to a party. I had never seen anyone drink before. I'd never seen anyone smoke a joint. Um, I had been around people with money, but not the kind of money you see at Trinity. Uh, and I didn't know what to make of it at first. I took the opportunity, I think, when I got to Trinity to try and rebrand myself, um, to go from being this, like, shy, awkward, pretty, in my opinion, at that time, bland kind of person, um, into someone that other people would gravitate towards. Um, I remember... <laughs> in preparation for Frosh Week at Trinity. Yeah, where we met. Where we met. I stayed up two nights baking 400 chocolate chip cookies. Holy. Because I wanted to give them out to everyone I met. And I knew our, frosh, our like freshman class would be about 400 people. I baked 400 cookies. I did not know this. So I could give them out to people I met. And that, so they would like me. Yeah. Right. I, looking back on it, it was such a strange kind of choice. And I think I needed to hide behind something like that. Or I felt I needed to because 
me myself saying, you know, hi, how are you? Like, my name is Maha wouldn't be enough for anyone to be interested in talking to me. Um, Trinity wasn't my choice. It was my dad's. Um, We were ranking colleges and I wanted to go to Victoria College. I always wanted to go to Victoria College. That had been my plan. I wanted to do Vic 1. We might have been better off at Vic. I agree with that now in retrospect. Yep. Um, (laughs) It feels like a mild betrayal to say, just because I invested so much of myself in Trinity. But I, I think that a lot sometimes. I think... What would have happened if I'd gone to Victoria College? What, have, what would have happened if I'd gone to McGill or any one of the other schools I got into? How would my life have been different? Um, I don't regret Trinity uh, because I made my best friends there. Right. Neither do I. Yeah, Neither I don't regret I. it. But going, would I do it again? I'd have to think really hard about it. It was my dad's choice. He's always been, like I think a lot of, people who come from places that were once part of the British Empire, he has like a, a really entrenched sense of Anglophilia. Um, and Yeah. yeah. Um, n- not that he, he doesn't understand the harms that were perpetrated by the British Empire, but he sees a certain... Um, he does see the British as kind of a civilizing influence yeah. in the world. And he was raised around people who felt that way as well so for him to see his child kind of move into that Oxbridge equivalent space I think was a moment of real triumph for him like I have done everything right I played my cards right I got my kid here and now my kid belongs in this space um you know, you know what's interesting to me is I I, I heard this this phrase before that um, I think our we are kind of the continuation of our parents' stories, yeah. and it shouldn't be that way. I think we will have our own stories, and I think we we like I think you and I have both discovered our own stories as oh, yeah. as it's being written Mm -hmm. but I think you are right there that I think it's really interesting that you bring up that it was your dad's wish that you go to Trinity because it's the fulfillment of his dreams his I think in some way yeah I think so um I mean to be perfectly clear like I did sign on to it I gave him a bit of a fight and I, then I said, you, you, he probably knows what he's talking about. I'll rank Trinity first. And as you know, of course, if you rank Trinity first, you can't get into Vic. Yeah. That's just the way it works, right? There's, a, there's a, an intense rivalry between those two places. So, you know, I got into Trinity and my dad said, yeah, this is where I want you to, to go. And I said, okay, can I live on campus? And he said, yes, you can. If you go to Trinity, you can live on campus. And I said, okay, done. Like, I wanted to go to McGill. I wanted to get away from home at 17. I, I, I didn't... And I was so... And I didn't even realize it at the time, but I was so intensely privileged that my parents could pay to send me to live in the dormitories. Yeah. Uh, because it was unnecessary. I lived 45 minutes from campus. I could have commuted. Um, I wanted to, 
to leave though. I wanted to get out of my parents' house. And um, in retrospect, I don't think I was ready for it at 17. I wonder, so I also got into McGill and McGill was also my second choice. Mm -hmm. I kind of really wanted to go to McGill. And I think if I could do it over again, I would go to McGill. I wonder if we wouldn't, we wouldn't have met each other if we both went to McGill. I think we would have. We I, might have. Yeah, I think we would have gravitated towards each other and just, be, just you know, became friends again. I think that's at true. McGill. Yeah. I, I look back on my time at Trinity and kind of getting back to your original question, I think, about, you know, how did I feel in that space? I think I felt from the get-go, like, quite out of place. I didn't understand I think a lot of things that people intuitively understood um no for sure and having come from you know privileged backgrounds or you know having had parents who also went to trinity or grandparents that went to trinity right right having gone to private school that was such a big piece of that for me um because people knew each other you know did you did you find that like we got to trinity and there were people who already had a social circle yep and yeah. I felt quite out of place, I think, because it was, I guess, not rare in Trinity as a whole, but in that social sphere for you to have gone to a public school. Yeah. Right. Um, and to be fair, like I went to a, an, a public school in a really affluent part of Ontario, um, but it was still a public school. And I'd gone to public school my entire life. I had no idea what the private school sphere in Toronto looked like. And to see that kind of play out for the first time was really jarring to see people drinking for the first time was super jarring frosh week really was a it at times a pretty scary experience for me like i saw drunk people for the first time i saw people high for the first time yeah i um and i realized like the depths of my naivete in that moment and i really felt like i had to paper over that i had to really like put on airs that I I understood all of this and I think that's where a lot of that performative whiteness really came into play for me I didn't want to stick out um, on account of my race or my background I really really desperately wanted to fit in with these people and so I think to my own detriment a lot of the time I compromised on some of my own values some of the pieces of my identity that I grew up with, I didn't necessarily discard them, but I put them away in a little box. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wish, looking back, that I'd had someone to tell me that I didn't have to do that to fit in. Or that I didn't have to, or that maybe if I had to do that to fit in, that this wasn't a place worth fitting into. Right, right, right? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I never, I hadn't worn a dress since I was like six years old by the time I got to Trinity. And suddenly there was all this implicit pressure to behave in ways that were unfamiliar and uncomfortable to me, but I did it. And it was just because I was desperate to find some form of community, yeah. right? Um, being kind of a lonerish kid who hadn't had a ton of friends. Um, I really, really, really wanted to fit in, and I think student government became a place where that happened as well for me. I 
felt for the first time in my life at Trinity that I was quote unquote like popular. Yeah. Right. Um, People really did like you at Trinity's. I really and liked I, a lot of the people. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. I really liked a lot of the people, but I I always felt that um, I was playing a game. Like I always felt that um, not that I was being deliberately deceitful, but that people would find out something about me that I would mm-hmm. that they would see that I was in some way fraudulent or um, inauthentic or um, they would see just they would see very clearly all of the ways in which I didn't fit in. Um, so I really did my best. I bent over backwards again to my own detriment a lot of the time to get people to like me. Um, student government was, I think, just the natural extension of that because it played to a lot of my kind of interests and, and, and vision of what I wanted out of my life at that point in time. Um, head of college was... Well, first of all, the election was super grueling. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, yeah. And remember those rules of no campaigning? <laughs> No campaigning. Yeah, it yeah. was, it was challenging. And then we changed that. We we did. Yeah, we had to, we had to amend the uh, elections procedure code or whatever. Um, we were on the first year committee to to, <laughs> to discuss that. You know, God. good memories. Good memories. Really good memories. Look, I, I I learned a lot in those meeting rooms about myself, about other people, um, about how to make myself heard. Um, and I did feel at the, at the end of that experience that I'd gained a lot of core competencies that are really important um, in a workspace, in your personal life. Um, I stood for election. I felt sick over it for weeks. I was genuinely floored when I won. And I think people see that as like a humble brag. It's not. I... I genuinely thought I was going to lose. And the the reason I thought I was going to lose was because I was up against a beautiful white woman whose father and grandfather had gone to Trinity. I don't remember who, but I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to ask the name. She's, she's a lovely person. And I harbor... I never harbored any ill will towards this person. I was just extremely threatened by this person and everything they represented. And I thought that there was no way I could touch this person. Like, I, I, I remember saying to myself, like, what are you doing? You are setting yourself up for failure. Um, and this is a blow from which it'll take you a really long time to recover your self-esteem. Uh, I was genuinely shocked when I won. I couldn't quite believe it. And I think that shock, like that being shell-shocked kind of like, it never really went away. Um, the year itself, being head of college, like you, your term is from kind of when you're elected, but not really, more like from the September of the school year to the April. Yeah, from right? quad, well, from quad party. From from quad party, God, quad party. Um, yeah. for, for, tell them about quad yeah, party. Yeah, yeah, for those who, 
uh, are listening, Quad Party is an annual party at Trinity that is held in the Quad, which is the area within the walls of Trinity in the lawn in the inside of the building. Mm -hmm. um, and there is copious amounts of beer that is... Just excessive amounts. Yeah, excessive amounts. I think... What was it? 20, 20 50 kegs. 20, yeah, 50 20 liter kegs? kegs or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's an absolutely crazy amount. I remember uh, trying to do the math and it amounted to like four liters of beer a person. A person, Which yeah. could kill someone. Yeah, it you was know? genuinely reckless. Yeah, it was, um, it was disgusting. It was disgusting, yeah, it was but it was quite... also fun. Also, Trinity has banned Quad Party now. I, I hadn't heard that actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. because they're because they changed the alcohol policy, there's no right. alcohol on the premises of Trinity. Right. Um so they can't hold quad party. Right. Um what they what they what some people did instead is they rented out uh Lee's Palace. No 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 Dance Cave. Oh my god. And um had their own uh quote unquote quad party there at least that's from what i've heard i'm so far removed from this space that i had no idea that that happened it does not surprise me in the slightest <laughs> um yeah it quad party was like a rough initiation right like basically you're just serving beer all night you're everyone's beer bitch um it was it was fine um the thing for me is like being a, a non-drinker in a really um, in, in a, cu a culture that a social as culture in a social space that was really centered on alcohol um, was always a very difficult line for me to walk right and I kind of ended up being everyone's sober patrol as I'm sure you remember yep, yep. right um, and I think that was honestly a lot of the reason why people liked me looking back is that they felt like there was someone who was watching over them but it also made me feel and I think it made other people feel uncomfortable at times because I was like the one non-drinker in this space um, and I think it was really foreign to a lot of people and it goes along I think with like the reason I don't drink was because I was raised Muslim right and so there's a there's a piece of me that maybe uncharitably felt that some of the kind of derision of or the discomfort around my non-drinking was because I'm Muslim. Um, I'm not particularly practicing, I wouldn't say that. I struggle with faith for a bunch of reasons, but this is one thing that I've really held on to really strongly. It was a value I got from my parents, which is it's not even so much about drinking, it's about like, I value being in control of myself. Um, and I saw so many situations at Trinity where people were just out of control. Oh yeah, yeah. Right? Um, out of control of themselves, out of control of a situation. And, you know, also I think a really important piece of it for me was, was mental health related. Like, you know, I have depression, I'm medicated for depression and for me to drink would just kind of be reckless in that way, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, head of college. It was a challenging, grueling, grueling experience. 
I think it really it opened my eyes around like two things or a bunch of things but two main things one how gendered the division of labor can be um, in positions like that mm-hmm. and two what people expect of and expect from women versus men or female identifying people and male identifying people yeah um from the get-go, I was told by the previous heads, I remember I had to sit down with two of them, their names were Sarah and Melissa, and they said, the bulk of the emotional labor of these jobs will fall to you. And what that meant was, you know, I was ahead, I was in a space of the building called Whitaker, which was four floors of females and primarily first-year women. Yep. And when they had problems, when they were having struggles, um, you know, both practical and especially kind of emotional um, or mental health related, they would knock on my door. And I had no problem with that. But my male counterparts did not have the same experience at all. And I think maybe part of it has to do with really damaging narratives around men and mental health. And I think you could speak really powerfully to that. Um, But it it was striking to me. how this was just something the female heads had to deal with that the male heads did not have to deal with. Um, the other piece of it, I think, was, you know, I had a, a really great team that I worked with. My co-head was a guy named Ben. And we worked together. We didn't work super closely together, I wouldn't say. I wouldn't characterize our working relationship as, as particularly um, cohesive. But we did work on projects together, a lot of governance-related things, and it always it always gnawed at me how we'd be in meetings. We'd have a meeting called the Trinity College meeting, as I'm yep. sure you remember, right? Yeah, I was the vice chair. You were the vice chair. Yep. It Basically, for those who don't know, it's a big... Um, student government. Yeah, it's student yeah. government, right? So everyone is allowed to come to the meeting. Everyone has a vote. You wear your academic gown. If you don't have a gown, you can't vote or speak. But the idea is it's a direct democracy. So, you know, you get to hear what's being voted on. You get to ask questions directly to the people proposing motions, and then you get to have a vote. And I thought it was really cool. I thought it was beautiful um, as often as I thought it was ridiculous yeah i i loved it i loved it i loved i loved and hated it a lot yeah yep yeah it was a love hate that was my relationship with it too yeah it was a love hate thing but you know you and i were both passionate attendees of the tcm i remember that and um it would always bug me in those meetings how people if they were asking questions about something serious or governance related it was my portfolio too they would always direct their questions to ben Always. And this is nothing against Ben. He was really bright. He knew what he was doing. He was, he had a lot of expertise um, and he'd been ahead before. And I guess, you know, that maybe spoke to part of it, but it bugged me because often he didn't have the answers I did because I don't, I'd gone to the meeting where the discussion had been had. Um, That, that always got at me. And Part of me always wondered, is it gendered? Is it racial? What is it? What is it about me and the way I present myself that doesn't 
leave people with the impression that I'm authoritative. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I found really challenging about that year was I really struggled acutely with my mental health that year. It had been declining for all of our second year uh, pretty precipitously, I would say in retrospect, but I remember full days that year where I could not get out of my bed in my dorm room. Right, right. I was just riddled with anxiety. Um, I was so deeply enmeshed in this feeling of self-loathing and I'm not good enough and I'm a fraud and everyone's going to find out and I can't do this. Um, and it was so hard for me to go from that headspace to having to turn it on real quick because I felt so much like I had to hide. And Trinity is so... Well, the Trinity we went to, at least, I remember, was so hyper-competitive. Yeah, it, it really is. Right? Because yeah. it's, it's, it's basically the, the equivalent of if you... I always thought of it as like cooking rice in a pressure cooker. Right? Like, each individual grain of rice that you're cooking is a type A student who is at Trinity College, and you just add some water and turn up the heat and close the lid, and that is Trinity College. That's how I felt all the time. I felt like I was going to burst. Yeah. Um, and I, I felt the same way, and I think yeah. a, lot of, a lot of people felt the same way. There's a lot of pressure, and and um, I'll, I'll ask you about that as well, uh, about, about it later, yeah. but... Um, a lot of the people that went to Trinity went to uh, did international relations, yeah. did peace, conflict, and justice studies, yeah. and everyone wanted to be a lawyer. Everyone wanted to go to grad school. You yeah. know, they want the the top schools. They want to go to Oxford. They want to go to yeah. Cambridge. Yeah. They want to go to U of T Law. You know, yeah. and there was just this this atmosphere of competitiveness, and yeah. I'm gonna do better than you. Yeah. And, you know, I I remember someone telling me, "Hey, Angelo, look at those guys over there in that table over there. I have a higher GPA than all of them combined." You oh know, God. that's that's the kind of super competitiveness that we were put in, yeah. and just that that atmosphere that's going to break anyone. And and it really like it broke me. It broke me too. You know. Um, so I want to I want to go from there and I want to take it full circle. Yeah. Um, I want to ask how you got from there to where what you're doing now. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I, I also don't really know this story and this yeah. might be a challenging yeah. uh, thing for you to talk about. So, yeah. you know, feel free to talk about it in, in whatever way you want. Yeah. But um you came from studying international relations and peace, conflict, and justice studies. Yeah. You were female head of college. You were this this high achieving person, yeah. and I really admired you. And you were like really high up there, mm-hmm. um, and I still really admire you. I, I'm not like <laughs> let me let me get that let me get that clear. I Thank still really you. admire you, but you're now in a space where you are. Uh, as you said earlier to me, that you are working towards your bachelor social work. Yeah. You know, how did you jump from Trinity, from that hyper competitiveness of, of academia, of international relations, of PCJ, to 
this social work space that you're currently working on now? Yeah. That's a great question. I think there's a pr- I think I can draw a pretty direct line from the two in a lot of ways. As stressful and at times horrible that year as head of college was, it did two things for me. One, it taught me a lot about myself. It taught me about what I respected in other people, what I valued in myself, um, what I valued in the labor that we perform for other people, what I think is really important. Um, it was a time in my life where I was struggling, as I said, with like really, really acute, undiagnosed, untreated depression and anxiety. and also struggling with other facets of how do I fit in what are what is my identity um, and kind of struggling as I do even now to live comfortably at the intersection of those identities after my year as head of college I was I was really drifting like my My grades in my first and second year at U of T were really good. They were not good in my third or fourth years. Mm -hmm. And the honest fact is that I didn't have grades good enough to do what I wanted to do. I didn't have grades good enough to go to grad school. I didn't have grades good enough to go to law school, uh, which had always been my plan. It had always been my plan to go to U of T law. I was one of those people that you were just talking about who was so set on that goal. And I was so deeply ashamed of the fact that I just couldn't put, I I just felt like there was something wrong with me. I couldn't put in the work. I couldn't get the grades that everyone else was getting. And I saw in fourth year, you know, our friends getting accepted to Ivy League schools and law programs and grad programs. And I felt so left behind. Right, right, yeah. I, you know, I, I felt the same way and it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And I, I have a, you know, a very similar story. And, you know, especially being around the people that we were at Trin yeah. and having everybody on Facebook and seeing all those, wow. you know, at posts about being accepted to U of T Law and to, you know, all these grad schools. Yeah. It, it, it was heartbreaking. It was it was really heartbreaking, and I yeah. like that's that's exactly you know what what you said is exactly yeah. how I felt. So, yeah. you know, how did you how did you deal with that? Like, how did you uh, go to this place where you're you're starting to realize what you want to do, and yeah. you know, really helping out people because that's what you know. Again, that's what I really admire about you that you know you you. Um, you had always been an advocate ever since the first day that I met you. And now you're in this space where you can actually do some, like, really good work on the ground working with people. So how did you how did you get there? Because I really admire that that path, that journey. After my fourth year at Trinity, I just straight up didn't have enough credits to graduate. So I, and I was hiding from it. I was hiding it from my parents. I was hiding it from myself. Um, I said, okay, I'm going to take summer classes and I'm going to come back for a fifth year and then I'll, I hopefully everything will go well. I'll have enough credits to graduate and then I'll figure it out. I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I've got to do something. 
So I was taking summer classes and I did something that I really, really deeply regret. I was late on getting an assignment in. It was because I was super anxious and not doing well. Though I don't see that as an excuse, it's just an explanation. And I went to a doctor, I got a medical note from them, and I changed the date on it so that I could get an extension on a paper. I handed in the paper, handed in the medical note, and I was so sickened with myself that I'd done that. Um, and I was also sort of coming out of a really bad relationship at that time, my first relationship. Um, bad in the sense that it had been good for neither of us. Not bad in the sense that this was a bad person or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was so deeply despondent about everything in my life uh, that I attempted suicide. Um, I'd been stockpiling pills for a while, um, and I it was July second, twenty fifteen. Um, I took all of them, and I, I guess. Before I passed out, I had texted a, a good friend of mine and I told them what I'd done um, because they were checking in on me because they were concerned that I wasn't doing well. And they called the police. They came to my house. I was form one. I spent 72 hours on psychiatric hold um, at Markham Stouffville Hospital. And it really what it was horrible. Anyone who's ever been Form 1 knows how horrible and dehumanizing and isolating it can actually be. Uh, Even when yes. it's for your own safety, you know, it, it doesn't make you feel better about anything. No, it's not. And, and it's not meant to. It's not meant to. Like, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not. It's, it's designed to make you make your skin crawl. It's designed to make you want to get the fuck out of there. Um, but it led to a reckoning, you know, my, my parents really didn't realize how badly I'd been doing, um, a lot of people in my life, my friends, my siblings, they, they didn't know. And it was the beginning of healing. It was super, super painful. Um, I, but it forced me into a space where you know, they needed answers, and I, frankly, they deserved answers at that point, uh, from my perspective. So I finally started to share, like, everything that I'd kept to myself for four years about how I'd been struggling. I was able to finally open a line of, of communication and dialogue with my family, um, which was really important to me because I grew up really close to my family. And for four, the four years I was at Trinity, I, I, by the end of it, I was so distant from them in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I think in so many ways because I, I tried to shed a big piece of my identity, like a cultural heritage and background um, that I'd lost a piece of that connection that I otherwise always had with my mom and dad, especially. 
So when U of T found out what I had done, um, I had a I had to sit through an academic hearing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and eventually it was determined that I should be suspended from the university. It took a year. <laughs> it was horrible, but it's basically an academic tribunal process, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so they adjudicated it. They realized, yeah, there are a lot of mitigating factors here, but this person did something wrong. They admit to having done something wrong. So I got suspended, and that was a huge blow. Um, that I'm still recovering from in a lot of ways um, because it felt like this wholesale rejection of me by this institution that I'd so venerated yeah. in a lot of ways, yeah. you know? Um, it was, it felt like a, in my most righteous, like moments of most righteous indignation, it really felt like, oh wow, like this is a big fuck you. You don't belong in this space at all. Yeah. Right? Um, you don't work here. You don't fit here. In my more measured moments, I don't necessarily see it that way. But I do think that academic institutions like U of T do not know how to deal with people in crisis. No, they don't. They, they don't. don't. They don't. They and don't. Not, not in my experience either. And yeah. not in many other people's experiences either. They don't. There's no empathy in the system. None. Um, I felt it personally, and it was yeah. it was just terrible. Yeah. I sat on my couch for a bunch of months at my parents' house. I didn't do much of anything. I would get up in the morning. I had a my niece at that time was like six months old um, at the start of this tribunal process. I'd get up at seven because I just couldn't sleep, and I'd sit on the couch in the family room and I'd wait for her to come down and that was like the bright spot in my life for a long time was her um, that was something I really really held on to was my relationship with with my niece with this like just beautiful baby who knew nothing about me and didn't look at me with any judgment or pity um, and I sat on the couch and I would wait for her and I watched down Nabby like 15 times and like didn't do much of anything I really didn't do much of anything else I was yeah. kind of like wasting away on the couch during and one of my depression spells I just watched seasons of the West Wing I've done that too yeah, yeah. I went through I went through seasons of the West Wing which is which is an amazing show by the way so good if you have not watched it I love all of it except parts of the sixth season which what I find the election campaign the election campaign is great. No, I maybe it's the fifth season. I find the whole um, Israel-Palestine arc kind of annoying. Yeah. yeah, yeah I think it's really annoying. unnuanced. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, brilliant show. Yeah. Highly recommend. Sorry, um, I, I, I didn't no, want to derail okay. you. No, no, it's okay. Um, so I... I mean, I was in therapy at this time, but that was pretty much the only thing I was doing, and... Everyone in my family was, after a few months, was starting to look at me like, okay, what are you going to do? You got to do something. So I started working. I was tutoring um, high school kids um, at like a learning center. And my brother said to me, okay, well, well what do you want to do? I said, I, I don't know. He said, no, no, you, you know what you want to do. What do you want to do? I said, 
I think... I think I, there are a lot of things I want to do. I just don't think I can do them. I don't think I have the capacity. And he said, no, 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 that's not true. You're just feeling that way right now. Your brain is telling you that. It's not, it's not reality. What do you... What do you think you're good at? It took me a really long time to answer him. Um, but I said to him, you know, when I think back at, over the last few years, the times where I felt the most connected to other people, the most productive were when I was ahead and I was helping other people, when I was connecting people in crisis to resources, um, when I was, you know, talking to people about what they were struggling with and, and trying to f help them find ways to cope with their circumstances just a little bit better. Um, and he said to me, well, you know, you've mentioned social work in the past, why don't you do some volunteering? Like, why don't you try it out? I said, I don't know, I'm not sure. He said, no, you gotta, you gotta try something. So I started volunteering a little bit, and then I learned that there was a, like a continuing education program at Seneca College uh, in social service work. So my dad said, you know, you should go for it, you should register in a class, see how it goes. I was really, really nervous because I hadn't been in a classroom in over a year. All my like previous experiences in classrooms over the last few years had been so negative. I was just wasn't able to perform or focus or anything. And I walked into this classroom on the first day. It was a class in interpersonal communications. Mm -hmm. It was 10 people or so. Everyone in the room, including the instructor, was a person of color. Wow. The instructor was like a young black man. Everyone else in the room was... It was the most diverse classroom I'd ever walked into. It was amazing. I felt immediately at home in that space. Because I knew that whatever my particular formation of identities was, that the other people in that room probably on some level intuitively understood my struggle and intuitively understood what I was trying to do here, which was, I think, in a really big way, gain the skills so that I could harness my own experiences and struggles productively um, to be able to help other people on the other, coming out of the other side of it. So I did um, classes at Seneca for like two, two and a half years, kind of taking them part-time, kept working a little bit, um, I did two placements. I did one in an adult day program working with older adults who have um, dementia and um, some of them have like mobility concerns um, and that was great. Um, then I worked at a community center in the West End called, well I worked with an agency in the West End um, of Toronto called um, Christy Ossington Neighborhood Center. Um, and I worked with their director of operations there to open a new community center, which just recently really cool. opened. It's awesome. Yeah, that's really, really cool. It's a really cool space. I would encourage people in Toronto to check it out. It's um, called the George, George Chavallo Community Center. It's named after the famous boxer, George Chavallo, who's from the Junction Triangle. Oh, okay. okay. Um, and that's kind of where it's situated. It's a really beautiful space. Um, they have a lot of programs for youth especially geared towards like 
harm reduction and like inclusivity for queer youth. I think they just recently had like a like a queer youth prom, which That's I really thought cool. was awesome. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would strongly encourage people to like look them up, George Chabalo. Um And then I started looking for for work in the field, um, which was a grueling experience. Yep. Um, Always jobs, is. Job searching is horrible. Yep, I, I know the I know the pain firsthand. Yep. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> yeah, job searching is horrible because you're basically sending out like pieces of paper into the void, hoping that someone recognizes that you have some skills. Yeah. Um, are I, you a value to, to, to society? Oh. No. Are you a value to our business? Absolutely. Um, like, how can how can we commodify you? Yeah. Right. Like. Um, are you what we're looking for? Are you the commodity we're looking for, basically? Yeah. It's like shopping. Yeah. Um, I applied for a bunch of jobs, didn't get them, was super discouraged. Um, and then I got a job at this beautiful little agency called um, Not Far From The Tree. It's a fruit... It's like a fruit uh, collecting collective, basically. Um, it started off with this woman, Laura Rinesborough, um, like 10 years back. Basically, it was a four-person agency, and I was one of the four people. And what we did was organize fruit picks um, in people's backyards in Toronto. Oh, cool, cool. And we'd coordinate teams of volunteers to go and pick other people's fruit with their consent, of course. And then the model was, you know, you'd share one-third with the homeowner if they wanted it, one-third with the pickers, and then one-third would be delivered via cargo bike to some social service agency. That's really cool. It was awesome. So I spent basically all of last summer, like, riding around bikes in the city of Toronto, like, learning how to ride a cargo bike, um, picking fruit, um, like, meeting with awesome people. Um, I had a blast. I was there for five months. Um, and then I got a job that's kind of more in my field, um, which was at uh, the Canadian Mental Health Association. So there I work in, I work at the, um, at a site that's right next to a CAMH site, which is the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Um, and in this program, it's a, it's a transitional rehabilitation housing program. All the clients I work with are um, clients who are forensic mental health clients, um, which basically means that in the course of their severe mental health concern um, or psychosis in some cases, they committed a crime for which they've been found not criminally responsible by the courts. Um, basically, it's a mental health defense. Right? And obviously this is controversial. Lots of people think that, you know, it's people getting off, quote-unquote, scot-free. Um, my experience has not been that. You know, these are people who, in many cases, have been institutionalized for decades. Um, there are so many times in their lives where they've been failed by mental health professionals, social services, their communities. Um, the agencies that are supposed to help them. So I work uh, still there uh, part-time in a team of residential support workers. So basically we have a facility, um, 
we have like up to 12 people who are living there at any given time. They've come from CAMH. They're living in this residence and most of them will live there for between one to two years. So it's a long transition period, relatively speaking. And the idea is that you're trying to stop that community to hospital kind of pipeline where people who are struggling with severe mental illness are released from hospital and thrown back into the community with zero real supports. Right. 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 And so they end up in crisis and back at the hospital. Right. And it becomes this kind of revolving door situation. The logic behind transitional housing and this program is that, you know, how can we create like kind of a baby step between hospital and living independently um, to living in this basically supportive environment where we can help these people cultivate skills around activities of daily living, right? So many of these people have been institutionalized for so long that they just didn't get the opportunity to learn the skills that you and I learned from our families or from our peers or just living on our own, right? right? Like how to do your laundry, how to, you know, fry an egg, how to uh, manage your personal finances, right? And it sounds kind of maybe patronizing to untrained ears, right? But these are the basic skills that you need to be able to live successfully on your own, right? And so the idea is like, we work really closely with each individual client to identify goals and what they need. And hopefully in that period that they're staying there, they go from having none or fewer of those skills to feeling confident that they can live in the community by them by themselves or with strong supports, yep. right? Um, it's just meant to be a safe space where people can acclimate to the conditions of, of living independently and learning to manage the symptoms of their illness in in a community setting, right? Like a lot of the clients we work with have pretty intense mental health concerns like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, congruent or sorry, concurrent like um, struggles with problematic substance use yep. um, and other diagnoses as well. So it's really challenging work at times um, but super fulfilling I would say Um, you get to form really because you're working with these clients so closely and so regularly you get to form really strong bonds with them Um, the other job that I do um, is I work as a program coordinator for a um, senior center um, super different, obviously working pretty exclusively with older adults. Um, it's not a clinical setting, it's a community-based setting. Um, so relatively, like, well, quite a bit more casual, I would say. Um, but really, like, focused is on a totally different aspect of social work and skill sets. And it's really about, like, promoting wellness, um, and... Encouraging, encouraging, and sort of promoting the idea that even as people age, um, or perhaps especially as people age, they can acquire 
new interests, new hobbies, new skills, that, you know, people's usefulness, I mean, it doesn't stop when they stop working. I think it's such an insidious kind of narrative that comes from, like, deep-seated ideas about capitalism and the Protestant work ethic that, you know, if someone's retired, they're useless, right? Because they're not, quote-unquote, like, contributing to society anymore. And that's total bullshit, yeah. um, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, so many older adults, even in, you know, really beautiful communities like the one I get to work in, in Markham, um, struggle with isolation. They live um, on the edge of poverty. Um, they, you know, may have lost loved ones. They may not be super connected to their cultural communities anymore or their extended families. And so my role is coordinating programs for them certainly like I play a lot of bingo um, yeah. and you know learning to play bridge which I suck at it's super I, hard I don't know what bridge is it's a card game it's kind of like euchre from what I understand I don't know what euchre is either it's also a card <laughs> game I it just involves a lot of math which I'm not good at um, so there's a lot of like logistical kind of stuff like that but there's also just like a sense of you know being present, sitting with those seniors, um, and trying to foster a, a culture and a space where they feel like they have great value and like a lot to offer, right? Um, because, and I think it intersects really beautifully with like my own struggles around mental health and the other work that I, that I do and try to do um, I think a lot of people forget that seniors are people a lot of the time and that they have hassles in their life, they have daily struggles, they struggle with depression and anxiety, a lot of them are struggling pretty persistently with grief, right? Um, sometimes feelings of, of hopelessness or uselessness. Um, and. a lot of them also increasingly struggle with, with addiction. Yeah. And so it's a growing sort of space in the field of social work and in other helping and health professions because we have an acutely... <laughs> that, that was a little bit too loud there. Sorry, could you repeat No problem. That? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we have an acutely, obviously, aging population, right? So in a lot of um, helping professions and, and social work as well, like for want of a better term, gerontology is the quote-unquote, like, growth industry, right? Like, that's, this is where a lot of the jobs are right now and will be as time goes on. Um, but all of these fields, like, intersect, right? And especially the fields of mental health and addiction, which I'm really passionate about and working to learn more about every day, um, really intersect with the, the specific challenges that older adults face, right? Like, prescription drug abuse is extremely high among older adults in Ontario, which I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize or think about. Yeah. Uh, so we are, we just passed an hour and a half mark. Um, so I think we're going to have to start wrapping this up. But I think the fact that we have reached the hour and a half mark, I think just speaks to how interesting your story is, how um how smart you are Thank how you. um 
how much you know your story. Wait until this. Guys, <laughs> yeah, that's the problem of recording in a backyard. You're yeah. not. You're you're susceptible to um, to ambulances and motorcycles coming by. Absolutely. Um, but. No, I really want to thank you for coming on to this. Thank I you. did not know your story. You know, we we kept in touch, but not really. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know what was happening in your life. Yeah. And I really appreciate you coming on this podcast and talking about it in, you know, is what is kind of a public forum where yeah. people will, will listen to it. Yeah. And that is really brave. And I think, you know... A lot of people uh, aren't able to do that. I think sometimes there are things that I, you know, have about my story that I'm, you know, not comfortable about talking about. Yeah. Um, but I am uh, proud that you that you that you came out and told us your story. Mm-hmm. Um, I know uh, that it is a hard journey to healing. Yeah. And I think all of this just speaks to how heartfelt your story is how strong and passionate of an advocate you are how smart and dedicated you are um and these are traits i've always known since you know the first day that i've met you um so i'm gonna give you a big hug after this this is over um but I do need to ask you before we go. Yes. Um, we have to talk a little bit about music. We do. We we went to the Bonnie Vera concert in 2011 together, right? Yes, like we, we did. We both went yeah. at Massey Hall. Yeah. Uh, have you heard any of the new Bonnie Vera tracks? Gosh, I'm 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 gonna sound like a fraud now. Um, have you heard 22 a million? Yes, I have. Okay. That I have. Yes. So I don't know how to say any of those those song titles no, no, no don't, don't i don't think try. anyone i don't think anyone yeah. does um but yes i have i have definitely listened to 22 a million there are certain tracks on that album i really 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 love um like i don't know it's felt like 715 creek i think it is yeah that yeah. song is really good beautiful song yeah. the last song that kind of reads out as 10 10,000 million yeah. something like that um is probably one of the most beautiful songs I've heard where it's like it haunts me and haunts me and haunts me like a lamb yeah. I think that's a really beautiful lyric yeah yeah um, there's gonna be a new album that's coming out uh, in a few months there are a couple songs you should go listen to them I will I yeah. will yeah. I always go back to vintage Bonnie Vare as I as I put it um, but for Emma and Bonnie Vare, Bonnie Vare. Well, I have very, I have very fond memories of you and I, like in our dorm room hallways and like yeah, playing singing, for, playing, playing for, for Emma. Emma. Yes, yeah. yes. I was thinking about that today, actually, um, because you know you you played guitar. And I think you still play guitar. Uh, I sometimes. hope. Okay. Sometimes. Right. And you know, I loved playing guitar. I still do. I still dabble. Um, but. I mean, that was the first thing we bonded over. I remember. That really was. I remember um, really uh, distinctly in our frosh week, like, um, like being at that party in Melinda Seaman, and then sitting in the back courtyard area, and you had your guitar, and I had my guitar, and a bunch of people brought their guitars out. Yeah. And like that was the f- that was the first kind of experience I had at Trinity, where I was like, wow, okay, this is a cool place with cool yeah. people. Yeah. 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 
who else was there? Shout out to uh, Amr. Shout out to uh, Luis. Uh, shout out to Cole Firth. Cole Firth. Cameron Reed. Yeah, shout out to Cameron Reed. Cameron is uh, in a band. And, is in a band. Yeah, I have to go check his uh, his shows out. He's really great. I've worked with him a little bit in the past couple years. Like he's definitely like he's helped me out with a couple of like side project music things I've done. And okay. his band Quirks is awesome. Yeah, shout out Quirks. You gotta listen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, so that was a really good way of just like bringing it back around to like Absolutely. the first time that we met. That's so. That's so interesting. That's so funny. Um, before we go, is there anything else you wanted to say? Well, thank you for having me on. Um, I was very excited when you came to came to me and said you wanted to, to talk to me about my story. Um, I think it's a really awesome concept because it like reifies and and underscores just how much all of us have a story to tell and a story that's worth telling and worth hearing and listening to being attentive to um and i'm sure you know as you have more and more of these conversations with people and hear more and more people's stories that um the threads will come together and we'll we'll see you know as kind of maybe corny as it sounds um, how similar a lot of our stories are. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think there's some universal truths that come with being human, um, with being a person in your early 20s or mid 20s, I guess. Um, and it's very, it's really comforting to sit here in this space and talk to you and realize how much we share yeah right yeah and how closely our experiences mirror each other um and i am just really honored that you gave me a space in which i could you know safely share my story with you and with anyone who happens to listen to this podcast um i guess what i would just leave people with is your story is worth telling. I don't always feel that way about my own story. I don't always feel that way about myself. Um, but if there's anything I learn in my work, you know, just speaking to people every single day, everyone has a story that's worth telling. Um, and f- find in yourself the strength and the language to tell your own story. Don't let other people write your story for you or 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 tell your story on your behalf um because you are the expert on yourself and you are the expert on what about you is worth sharing um and worth highlighting i would just encourage people to be um truthful about themselves and not to feel I think we all walk around with a lot of sense of guilt and shame about the things that we aren't or the things that we haven't done Um, I know I do but um, when you start to talk about those painful fractured broken pieces inside of you that that are part of your story um, it's 
as you say, like it's it's the way to healing. And I wish that for myself and I wish that for everyone. Cool. Well, those are really strong and very great words to, to end off with. Um, I want to thank you, Maha, for coming in, for uh, doing this podcast with me. Um, I want to thank all the listeners. Uh, hopefully I can do this more. Um, I think, as Ma said, I think everybody's story is worth telling. Um, Everybody's lives contain multitudes. And I think this uh, particular recording just shows, you know, how uh, much, how how great of a journey that everybody has been through Mm -hmm. and how their stories are worth telling. So I'm going to keep doing this. Um, hopefully you'll hear another one Um, I don't know who I'll have on next Um, but uh, hopefully this one works Um, and hopefully this this mic and this this environment worked (laughs) hopefully it wasn't too loud Um, if you like this let us know comment on Facebook or on Instagram or on Twitter you know where to reach me Um, subscribe on iTunes Spotify wherever you get your podcasts um, you know, I'm doing the whole spiel, but, <laughs> but I really need your feedback. I really hope you enjoy listening to this so that um, hopefully I can make some more for you and hopefully you enjoy it. Uh, so thank you for listening and uh, I'll uh, talk to you guys later. Thanks. Before I end this episode, I just want to share my thanks to a couple of people. First of all, Maha for coming on to the podcast and for sharing her story really bravely. I know it was challenging and emotional um, and I'm happy that she was able to do it with me here. I want to thank Quan for graciously uh, allowing me to use his music as the intro music for the podcast. His music is called Twin Attic. You can find them on Bandcamp. The song is Confidant. I want to thank Patricia and Damon for the logo and helping me out with the idea and the concept and putting it all together. And I want to thank you all for listening. I hope you really do enjoy this. Most of all, Maha and I wanted to dedicate this episode to our good friend Will. We're all still thinking about you. We love you and we miss you very dearly.